The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in the study of God's word, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word is enduring, that it's everlasting, that it is, uh, reflects and teaches us how you think and how we should think about what you have created. Father, we're grateful that it is in the light of your word that we see truth and that it is by the guidance of your word that we are able to properly understand and interpret all that is within our purview and your creation. Now, Father, as we continue our study in Hebrews, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study, that we may have greater clarity and precision in our understanding of how you work in the Christian life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Two problems we've been studying the last three or four weeks have to do with how we think. And it's very difficult for people to think about thinking. This is not simple stuff. And most of you are doing pretty good slugging your way through this. But the, I was thinking this week, what's a good illustration for this? And about the only illustration I can think of relates to the concept of foundation. Because knowledge is our foundation for everything. What is the foundation for your views on life? Everybody a, has a philosophy of life. You may not have ever thought about it. I remember having a conversation with one old East Texas country boy about 30 years ago. And I made the comment about, well, that's your philosophy. He's like, I ain't, I ain't no philosopher. Well, see, he may not be. He has an unthought-through philosophy of life. He has probably an inconsistent philosophy of life. But everybody has a philosophy of life. And a philosophy of life includes all your values, your ideas of what's right and what's wrong, your views on uh, politics, your views on marriage, your work ethic, uh, all of these things are part of your philosophy of life, and your philosophy of life is grounded in some sense in what you think is true versus what you think is false. And so at the very root of everything are people's ideas of right and wrong, truth and error, that which is absolute and eternal, and that which is not absolute and eternal. Even if you believe there are no absolutes, you've got a problem because you have a hidden absolute there that there are no absolutes. So everybody has a philosophy of life, and they interpret whatever is going on in life through that grid. And that's the foundation on which we build that, that house that is our life. Jesus used the illustration of a man who can either build a house on quicksand, on shifting sands, or there are those who build their house on solid rock. And it's that foundation idea. What are you building your house on? And that house... And that analogy is your whole world view, the, how you interact with everything in life. And that foundation has to do with your view of truth, your view of absolute, your view of that which is eternal. And see, by the time most of us got saved, and even for those of us like myself who got saved at, a, at an early age, you still have years that go by where you're loading up that, that foundation that you've got with a lot of human viewpoint. So it's a foundation that is made with uh, the, the solid elements that are necessary to have a good, hardcore, rock, concrete foundation. But we all import into that a lot of, um, a lot of stuff that shouldn't go in there that's going to produce a fairly crumbly, uh, crumbly foundation. Once you're saved and you start the process of spiritual growth and sanctification, 
what you really have to do is go in and not just tear the house down that's built on that foundation, but you have to go in and tear down the foundation. Because if the foundation is the cultural way of thinking about truth that surrounds you, which is either going to be, as we've seen, uh, empiricism, that which ultimate truth is determined by sense knowledge, or whether your cultural worldview is rationalism and everything is ultimately, ultimately determined by rigorous logic and reason, or whether it's mysticism, uh, whatever that worldview of, uh, foundation of truth is, when you come in and you try to build a Christian life, on that foundation, then what's going to happen? When the storms of life come, if they get really bad and you hit Hurricane Katrina in your spiritual life, then that foundation uh, that, that has incorporated elements of autonomous rationalism, autonomous empiricism, or mysticism, then that's going to crumble. And this is sometimes very difficult to spot these things. And I personally believe that God sends certain storms into our life because only when certain storms hit your life do you begin to realize that there's some element in that foundation underneath it that really isn't as stable as you thought it was, and all of a sudden uh, things start to... uh, uh, come unglued and unraveled and, and sometimes it, no matter how long you've been a Christian sometimes you might even start questioning the goodness of God the plan of God the consistency of God and like Job you're a mature believer but there are things that are going to be exposed by this storm that you need to deal with in your own spiritual life so that's why I'm going through this. Another reason I'm going through this is because we, we live in an era when there's just a lot of fuzzy thinking about this. And I'm always amazed at how few seminary-trained pastors that come out recently, and I'm, I'm including my own generation. I mean, I, I look around sometimes, and one of my closer, closer friends when I went through seminary, he's been a full-bore charismatic for the last 20 years. And so just, but, and I went back the other day, who was I reading? I was reading uh, someone in the late 19th century, and they were talking about how everything was just falling apart culturally. So this, this deterioration has been going on for at least 150 years Probably more. I would trace the source with Immanuel Kant at the end of the 18th century. And whatever the worldview is in the culture around the church, the church always imitates that. And there's a simple explanation for that: is that everybody in the church comes out of that cesspool, and so they come into the church dragging all of that nasty baggage with them. And it takes a while to get rid of it. And some people, they just never, never do quite get rid of it. And so it sort of hangs on down through the, down through the centuries. And last time I pointed out that uh, in the early church, you had two key figures, Origen and uh, Augustine of Hippo, who was a bishop of Hippo. And they just front-loaded Christianity in that era, even though there were a lot of their contemporaries who rejected what they were doing. They brought in all of this baggage from Platonism and Neoplatonism that introduced a lot of mysticism to the church, and it stayed with the church all through the Middle Ages, and elements of it continue to plague the church even today. In fact, I was doing some background study on C.S. Lewis. I've never been a Lewis uh, scholar. I was I knew several people when I was in in college who just loved C.S. Lewis and they read everything that uh, C.S. Lewis wrote and I was I, I think I re- first time I read anything he wrote no I take that back I read the screw tape letters if you've never read the screw tape letters you ought to read that sometime that is he had a great imagination and it is letters between an older demon to his uh, to his charge who is a young neophyte uh, demon who is just like a tempter, uh, what class one, just just getting into the business, and he's got to tempt this Christian, 
And he's got to cause him to fail in his spiritual life. And so the older demon is giving advice to this young rookie as to how he can be successful. And he has a lot of insights. And I read that when I was, uh, I think the year, I was teaching schools a year before I went to seminary. But I had to read uh, books that he wrote on miracles and mere Christianity and some other writings of his when I took an apologetics class in seminary, and that was fine, but Lewis just never was one of those guys that floated my boat. I liked to read Josh McDowell. I liked to read uh, Cornelius Van Til and some other more, uh, and Francis Schaeffer, but uh, Lewis was never one who floated my boat. But Lewis was, before he was saved, just like most of these other guys, you, almost, you see this paradigm, he was an idealist and a Platonist. And that always that element of his view of knowledge always impacted very subtly, but it's there. It always impacted his view of apologetics, his view of reasoning, and his his view of where that that common ground was in communication between a believer and an unbeliever. And see, if you get these kinds of uh, human viewpoint elements in your foundation, they do tend to bubble up at different times and expose certain weaknesses in whatever it is you're building on top of that foundation. Now, I finished up with that some last week, and I just want to start with this one slide so we know why I'm doing this. And the reason I'm doing this is because there is this reference in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, that these advancing believers who had advanced had gone into regression in their spiritual life, and they were now lazy, dull of hearing. And we're going to take some time exploring this whole idea of how this happens in the Christian life, because you see all kinds of people who, when they're young and they're new believers, they're excited and they're learning, and there's this tremendous momentum, and they're at Bible class two or three times a week, and they're listening to tapes the rest of the time, and there's this hunger. And then they tend to reach this plateau, and then the next thing you know, they, they, they get married, especially if it's somebody young. They get married, and then they have kids, and then they, their job starts putting demands on them. And then they, uh, next thing you know, all these details of life begin to crowd out their priority of the Word of God. And in the initial stages of the Christian life, so often we're driven because we have questions that we want to be answered. How do I know there's a God? What do I, what, how do I live the Christian life? What do I need to do in the faith rest drill? How do I handle this situation, that situation, uh, all these other things? But once we tend to get those questions answered, then that, that part of our motivation dries up. So we tend to coast a little bit. And that's an important time in the Christian life because we start switching motivation. The motivation is no longer driven by intellectual curiosity. Now it needs to be driven more by our desire to learn more about the Lord and to serve the Lord. And that's when we start going through those, those shifts that occur in spiritual adolescence. But a lot of folks hit that level and they just sort of begin to coast. Other things come into their life. Next thing they know, they're being distracted by all the details of life and they go into spiritual regression. And most folks will talk to you about sin. That's what you'll hear from most preachers is it's sin in your life, and there's a basis for that because Peter talks about the fleshly lusts at war against the soul. And, of course, the internal enemy of the believer is the sin nature. But what I'm pointing out is there's something more insidious that's going on uh, that can go on inside of our soul making war against our spiritual life than simply propensity to sin in the usual categories of sin that present themselves, and that is within the realm of our thinking, just the way we think. This is where that weakness in the foundation starts to bubble up. So we talked about cosmic degeneracy, which involves, uh, uh, we have immoral degeneracy overtly, which has a, a, a complementary role in the way we think. It produces irrationalism, mysticism, uh, licentiousness. Mysticism is basically anti-authoritarianism when applied to knowledge. There's an anti-authority here, just like whatever I want to do. In other words, it's, it's displayed in many ways. It's a counterpart to moral relativism and displayed a lot by that phrase in the judges that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's this, it's bubbling up from inside and it, it just 
whatever I want to do is right. So it, that's mysticism in the extreme. On the other hand, you have moral degeneracy, where you have this rigid authoritarianism that comes out of some sort of moral or religious code, or even a philosophical code. And many of the ancient philosophies had this rigorous procedures you had to go through in order to uh, grow and advance in, in, uh, in, their, uh, in their goal towards the ultimate good or the one or whatever it was that was there in order to uh, reach their, uh, fulfill their spiritual self. So it produced asceticism, self-righteousness. This was typical in Platonism in many forms of Gnosticism, and all of that had consequent impacts on the church. So we looked at, in the Bible, you had the two extremes indicated by the fertility or prosperity worshipers on the one hand, uh, illustrating immoral degeneracy, and the Pharisees on the other hand. That's just our backdrop. So we're looking at how the sin nature pressures us in these areas. Last time, going back to my opening illustration with C.S. Lewis a minute ago, last time I talked about this, I ended up, and I want to come back and go over it again, I talked about the fact that where this issue of how we know truth comes into play is in the realm of apologetics, when you as a believer are trying to communicate the gospel to an unbeliever, and you're talking to an unbeliever, and I'm not talking about necessarily witnessing to a child. This may come into play with some children ask some pretty perceptive questions at times, but you're witnessing to somebody who's a little more astute. They have, uh, they're older perhaps. They've heard all these objections to Christianity, and they have legitimate questions. Now, it's always difficult when you're witnessing to an unbeliever to decide which questions are really legitimate questions or which questions are merely diversions. They're just trying to throw a red herring across the trail to, to change the conversation. And you can talk to some people who've been around a while and they've heard this objection to Christianity, that objection to Christianity, this misrepresentation, and they think this is legitimate. So for them, this is, this is really an issue because they don't want to just put their brain in neutral and accept uh, some religious viewpoint or accept the Bible just because somebody says so. They have significant uh, questions about what the Bible says. Now, many times they're coming from a from a wrong position, and so we need to help uh, them with those questions and answer them, never getting diverted off the course of focusing on the cross and the need for salvation, but sometimes you have to lay that foundation, and it takes time. And you may be the one who's just uh, planting the seed. Somebody else comes along and provides a little water. Somebody else comes along and provides some light. And then eventually God is the one who, who makes it clear to them. God the Holy Spirit makes it clear to them in salvation. But in the process, what we're doing is we're talking to them about, about truth. We're talking to the other person about how you know what is true. Now, what is the criterion for evaluating a truth claim. I mean, if I'm going to say Jesus is God, how do you know that? What's your, what's your basis for saying that? You're talking to somebody who's an unbeliever, and they're saying, okay, what's the ultimate validation? How do you know Jesus was God? How do you know that that wasn't just something the church added because they were so impressed with the tradition that they started talking about, about uh, Jesus as God. And, and he, he never made those claims. And you have to know some things about the Bible in order to go back and answer that. But then they're going to ask the question, well, how do you really trust the Bible? Ultimately, it comes back to this foundational issue of how do we know truth? What is the ultimate criterion for determining whether this is true or this is false. Because that's your, that's your foundation. Now, when you do that, when you answer that question, sometimes you can, uh, if you're talking with somebody really bright, you can, you can really stub your toe here. We've all done it. Uh, and God is gracious enough to where often, often uh, he, he manages to get, use it anyway or get around their objection. But let me just give you this illustration. I threw this chart up last week, and I didn't differentiate things, so I wanted to do that a little more this time. Here's the believer, and on the other side you have the unbeliever, and they're trying to talk. But remember, the believer is talking, He uh, hopefully, 
is talking from a position of divine viewpoint and absolute truth. So he has an accurate view of reality as defined by God and defined by the Scripture. But he's talking to this unbeliever, and here I'm going to get very, very much like C.S. Lewis. This is one of, I just thought I'd throw this in this week since we're going to see the film on, on uh, Saturday night at fa- Family Night. I didn't announce that, but y'all remember we're having Family Night, 5 o'clock Saturday uh, afternoon, not in the morning. That C.S. Lewis emphasized, this was, it was, this was sort of platonic, but he emphasized the fact that God defines the real. And in, throughout his apologetics and philosophy was this idea that man in arrogance is living in an unreal world. And I think he's right about that. In arrogance, we construct our, our own view of reality and try to live within that, that view of reality, but it's not the way God created the world. And so uh, the unbeliever has generated this castle in the sky, if you will, that is his view of reality. And the believer, on the other hand, is in uh, a a rock-solid biblical worldview, and they're trying to talk to each other. But they can go this way and that way and just completely miss each other because they're talking from two completely different perspectives. Now, the pressure that's on you as an unbeliever is to try to step across the aisle, as it were, to help this guy get back to your side of the aisle. And that's where you get into trouble. Because once we step over and try to, we're struggling to find what is our point of common ground. What is our point where we can agree on something and then build, uh, build, build an understanding and a discussion so that I can bring him back over to a divine viewpoint? And so we have to struggle with this whole issue. Now, you may have never thought about it quite this way, but you, you, we've all, if you've ever tried to witness to an unbeliever, you've all wrestled with this. You know, it's almost as good as, as, uh, as a, a conservative Republican trying to talk to a liberal Democrat. It's just two completely cons- different opposite constructs of reality, and they're trying to figure out something that they can they can agree on. Well, with a believer and unbeliever, it's, it's even more extreme than that. So you have to ask the question, what is the common ground? Now, in doing that, we, we can't give away or we can't commit a strategic error. The unbeliever may be looking to reason as his ultimate authority for determining truth and error. Okay, so and we we sit back and we say, okay, the Bible's rational. God, of course, is is ultimate reason, ultimate truth. God is the source of logic. After all, we call Jesus the Logos. Where in the world do we get the word logic if we don't get it from the Greek word logos? Same root. Logic is embedded in logos. Reason is embedded in logos. So. We, we believe that the Bible is ultimately rational, but the Bible is only ultimately rational if you presuppose the Bible is true. If you don't presuppose the Bible is true and you're coming and reading the Bible as a Hindu or an agnostic or an atheist, then it just sounds like a bunch of gobbledygook to you because you're coming from a, a false position. So we, we think that, okay, we can go to rationalism, logic, the law of non-contradiction, and this is an apologetic strategy. And there's a number of apologetes out there who use this kind of strategy. I've mentioned Gordon Clark in the past, and there are, uh, there are a number of others. Uh, uh, Norm Geisler is another one. That, that this is the main issue, is to appeal to logic. Now, there is a way in which to appeal to logic within an apologetic strategy, but without appealing to autonomous logic. For you see, the unbeliever looks at reason as autonomous, existing independent from the mind of God. But you as a believer are not looking at reason as independent from the mind of God, are you? So you're not looking at reason the same way. And that's what's important. It's, that may seem real abstract, and it is, but let's say you and I go outside and we're talking with the head of the uh, biology department or botany department at the University of Houston, and we're talking about a tree out here in, a, out here in the uh, parking lot, across the parking lot in the green space. Now, there are a lot of things that we can agree 
about, agree with uh, about that tree. Color, shape, size, kind, quality, genus, species, all this kind of stuff. But you see for that unbeliever head of the biology department at the University of Houston, that tree is a product of raw chance. It just, it's just an accident. But for you as a believer, that tree is not an accident. It is the result of the planning and purpose of God, and it is perfectly designed, and it is always going to produce uh, If it's an oak tree, it's always going to produce acorns that are always going to produce oak trees. So see, in, in many ways, you, you can agree on a lot of different things, but ultimately, his very concept of a tree is not your concept of a tree, is it? Because his concept of a tree is something that's an accident and yours isn't. So there's a foundational area of disagreement. And that's what's going on here and what I'm trying to show in this chart is that when we appeal to reason, autonomous reason, as that point of contact, then the believer comes in and he is having to argue. He's, he's going to walk across the aisle to the unbeliever's concept of autonomous reason, and then on the basis of autonomous reason, try to argue the guy back across the aisle to a, a, a dependent concept of reason. You think that's going to work? Well, it works a lot of times only because people don't think very well. <laughs> They're inconsistent. Okay? They don't understand what's happening. But, but it is not methodologically consistent with, with Scripture. Now, the other way in which we often see this done is the unbeliever views the ultimate reality as historical evidence, empiricism. And so he, he views history, that which is recorded, that which has happened, that is, that is uh, that's objective reality. That is your ultimate appeal for what is true. And so when the believer comes along and he agrees with the unbeliever on empiricism, then he's looking at historical evidence, but the believer is now looking at a, at a historical evidence that comes out of what kind of history. See, the believer should be standing over here looking at history as the outworking of the plan of God that is guided and directed by God, foreseen and overseen from eternity past, working out the plan of God. So his view of history is not the view of the unbeliever who sees history as just, like Henry Ford said, one damn thing after another. It's just random events that have happened. So ultimately, when they're appealing to historical evidence, they have, <coughs> excuse me, they have completely different views of historic, what that historical evidence is. So you can't go over as a believer to an autonomous view of empiricism and try to argue the guy back to a dependent view of empiricism. What's your ultimate criterion? See, if you use his ultimate criterion, then you have a problem. Now, the next view is mysticism, which the apologetic strategy here is called fideism from the Latin word fide meaning faith. And it's the idea of just believe. It doesn't matter whether the tomb was empty or not. It doesn't matter if Jesus was God or not. It doesn't matter if he died as a substitute for your sins or as an example for you to, how to live. Just You just have to have meaning and purpose in your life. So just take that existential leap of faith and believe. And now you'll have meaning in your life. But don't think about Don't use any reason. Don't use any logic or, at all. It just totally divorces itself from reason, logic, or history. And that's a mystical approach. So you see how each view of how you think about truth affects your strategy for how you're going to communicate to the unbeliever. But I believe that if you're going to be biblical and consistent biblical and you're looking for that point of contact, that point of common ground with the unbeliever, and this is why what I think is really helpful for most Christians is a lot of times we get enmeshed in uh, a lot of dialogue with unbelievers. The next thing you know, we're just saying, well, I don't know the answers to all these questions, and I just feel so inadequate, and they're just, they're just asking this and that, and I don't know the answers. And we just feel overwhelmed because we bought into 
either the rationalistic approach or the empirical approach, and we think that we have to be able to marshal all this evidence to prove our point. See, the role of evidence isn't to prove. It's not that ultimate criterion. The role of the evidence simply validates. And there's a difference between being the ultimate proof and simply being corroboration or validation. Because the ultimate issue is revelation. God speaks. And that's, if you remember the chart that I put up there dealing with those different views of knowledge. You've got rationalism, empiricism, mysticism, all out of autonomous human viewpoint. And then that separate category, the difference between the creator and the creation, that important creator-creation distinction, is that God has spoken. And in Romans 1, 19 and 20, God tells us something. He tells us that when we're dialoguing with that unbeliever, that unbeliever has an inner knowledge of certainty about the truth already. See, we don't have to go to history to prove God exists. He already knows God exists. So in other words, the point of contact is in the image of God that he has that uh, warped as it is by sin... He already, he already, we don't have to prove. We don't have to go to the five proofs of Aquinas. You know, those, those arguments philosophically, this may blow you away, but philosophically, they never work. They've never been constructed in such a way that doesn't give away the boat. The, you have the <laughs> argument, uh, the cosmological argument, the anthropological argument, and the moral argument. And then my favorite was always the ontological argument. And that's what I wrote a master's thesis on. And, uh, but they don't work as the way they're constructed because they're never built on a biblical presupposition. They all go over to the the autonomous categories of the unbeliever and try to win him back over to the dependent categories of the Scripture. Now, Romans 1, 19 and 20 says, because what may be known of God is manifest, it's, it's in them, it's revealed in them, it's made clear to them, for God has shown it to them, and the them here are unbelievers. Every unbeliever knows in the core of his soul that God exists, that he has violated God's righteousness, and that there is accountability. And what he's been doing all along is trying to suppress this knowledge. Uh, Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth of unrighteousness. You have to know the truth before you can suppress it. Suppress it means to hold it down, reshape it, reformulate it, restructure it according to your own agenda. So from day one, that the carnal mind of the unbeliever is trying to redefine reality in terms of its own independence from God. So Romans 1.19 tells us, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. It's not fuzzy. God's not at the at the great white throne judgment, God is not going to accept from anybody the view that, well, it just wasn't clear. God said it couldn't have been more clear and you know it. Yeah, well, they're going to know it. They're not. They're going to be there without excuse, which is what this says. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Ah, and the word there I find it so fascinating. It's on apologetas, which is the negative side, it's like unapologetic instead of apologetic. Apologetic is a defense, a positive defense that's given in a courtroom arguing for a position. And without excuse means that they are without defense in the, before the bar of God's judgment. That's how clear God says the evidence of his existence is. So no matter how atheistic they may claim to be, no matter how agnostic they may claim to be, in the core of their soul, they know God exists. They know they're, a, they're created in the image of God, 
and they know they're a sinner. Not only that, but when we start witnessing to them, according to John 16, the Holy Spirit is taking the, the message that we're communicating, and He's using that to convict them with regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment. So when you as a believer are then communicating to an unbeliever, you have two things in your favor. Don't ever be intimidated by some Ph.D. or some uh, a smart aleck who thinks he knows all this stuff. You've got the, the reality of what God's Word says, that they already know God exists. They're just suppressing it. And number two, that the Holy Spirit is already convicting them. In other words, the Holy Spirit is going to take the, what you say and He's going to use it to peel back that, that, that suppressive camouflage that they're using to expose it, and that may really get them angry. And they may resist, they may reject, they may uh, become very hostile and continue to be hostile towards Christianity and toward you because of your, your use of the word is exposing their strategy of suppression. And just because they don't believe doesn't mean you didn't do your job. Our job is simply to explain the gospel as clearly as we can, to give an answer, Peter says in First uh, Peter 3.15, to give an answer for the hope that is within us to the best of our ability. You know, try not to uh, uh, make strategic errors in the way we present the gospel, but God is always going to uh, work around whatever flaws we have. That's, what, that's what's great. So it gives us great confidence that when we go, when we use this this approach to apologetics and witnessing, it's called the presuppositional approach because our presupposition is that they already know that God exists, and so we are uh, we're operating on that presupposition. We're not going to give up our beliefs. We're not going to compromise our view of dependent reason and empiricism in order to bring them over to our view. And by doing that, we are, in a greater way, relying upon God the Holy Spirit to make things uh, very clear to them. So Paul talks about this at the beginning of Romans, and that this is how, uh, how important it is to maintain this foundation of truth. Now, I want to move to the next area in this in this uh, study that we're doing. We've gone through mysticism. Then we looked at rationalism. Now we, we've been looking at this example of how these things affect our view of knowledge, our view of truth. How do we know what we should do? How do we know what's right? How do we go forward? And there's one area, there's one topic, one subject that comes up that is related to what we've been studying in Genesis on, on, uh, on Tuesday night in Divine Guidance, and that's the subject of the leading of the Holy Spirit. The leading of the Holy Spirit. How do we know when God the Holy Spirit is leading? And the big question is, is the leading of the Spirit the same as divine guidance? Is the leading of the Spirit the same as divine guidance? The reason I ask that question is because in common, everyday, evangelical, fuzzy parlance, fuzzy terminology, we equate the two. Theologians do it. Good theologians do it. But we have to go to the... There's only two places in the Scripture that talk about the leading of the Spirit. So what we have to do is we have to look at how that term is used in those two passages, and then after we understand how it is used in those two passages... Then we come back and we say, is this talk, are these passages talking about divine guidance? Now let me define divine guidance. By divine guidance, I'm talking about God helping us, enabling us, communicating in some way to us in the decision-making process, guide, overtly guiding and directing us in the course of our life. So what exactly is uh, the leading of the Spirit? Well, let me show you the confusion here, and I'm going to use a quote from Charles Ryrie. Charles Ryrie uh, makes a statement in the book, Basic Theology. Now, I've got a couple of slides out of order here, but before we get into this, let me just read the core, verse, the core verses to you that we're going to talk about. Romans 8.14 
and Galatians 5.18. These are the only two places to talk about the leading of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Romans 8.14 says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Galatians 5.18 says, But if you are led by the Spirit of God, you are not under the law. That's the, those are the only two passages that talk about the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, what's interesting is if you read the surrounding context of both of these verses, what you discover is that the context of both places, Paul's talking about the same thing. And that is the contrast between the believer who's living his life according to the Holy Spirit, on the basis of the Holy Spirit, in light of the Holy Spirit, versus the believer who's living his life in the power of the sin nature, on the power of the flesh, uh, walking according to the flesh. That's the context in both passages. Neither passage is talking about how to make decisions. Neither passage is talking about uh, uh, God's any kind of uh, special revelation or internal revelation or direction in life. Neither of those passages are talking about the will of God in that sense. Both of these passages are talking about the contrast between uh, believers who are living their life on the basis energized and empowered by God the Holy Spirit versus those who are energized and empowered by the sin nature. It's important for us to understand this so we get a grasp of what this is saying because I will tell you, I have, for some reason, I guess my antenna's been out a lot lately and I hear this terminology from believer after believer after believer that, well, that's how this pastor was led to teach or that's this person was led to be a missionary in Africa or that person is led to do this. And I'm going, where do they get this terminology? Is this biblical? And I don't think it is. And I think what happens is, you know, words are important. Words reflect ideas. And if you start describing these things with the wrong words, you end up going to the wrong place in your thinking. So we have to do a little self-correction here and look at how the Bible is using these words. I mean, that's one thing. If you don't ever get anything out of years sitting under my ministry, you need to learn this. And when people start saying anything, you say, okay, where do you get that from the Bible? Let's look at the text. Let's look at what the Scripture says. And let's not talk about what some theologian said. Let's not talk about what... Uh, your favorite pastor so-and-so said, or what Robbie said, let's look at what the Scripture says and go through the Scripture. And that's why I'm, and I'm not picking on Dr. Ryrie. Dr. Ryrie was one of my, my favorite uh, professors at Dallas Seminary. I spent many time uh, going in and sitting in his office and discussing different things with him. I remember a number of times going in and complaining about some other professors and their poor theology with Tommy Ice. You know, we were troublemakers from day one. And we would go in and go, Oh, Dr. Ryrie, I can't believe they let this so-and-so teach this in seminary. We always had a receptive ear. But I don't agree with everything Dr. Ryrie said. And this is one of the things that, just to give you a little background, that I think is so important when you get a pastor who to go through seminary. What happens in seminary, in a good seminary, where you're going through good coursework, is you learn who's who, who says what, who teaches what, and you learn something about the strain of ideas that go through the history of Christianity. And you don't just hear some one person teach what the Bible says, but you learn that none of us just popped up out of a vacuum. We were all influenced by various pastors, teachers, professors, uh, all through parents, all through our life, and you can trace out where these ideas come from. And there are some tremendous theologians within our heritage. Dr. Ryrie is one of them. I remember when I was uh, probably in college, I read his book, A Survey of Bible Doctrine. I can't tell you how many times I've used that and referred to it when I've gone through uh, various basic series and I, I've taught, used it as a textbook to teach through a class on basic theology and and it's it's tremendous. And the work that Dr. Ryrie has done, especially in the field of the authority of Scripture and bibliology as well as in dispensations, is is just tremendous. I remember my first day, I'll never forget this, first day of class at Dallas Seminary, sitting in a large lecture hall that would, in Lamb Auditorium, seat about 200 students sitting there, 
about the fourth row back, looking up there, and I just thought, you know, pinch me. I'm sitting here in a classroom, and that's Dr. Ryrie teaching me. And I get to sit in here, you know, two days a week for the whole semester and listen to him teach. This is just tremendous. And he, and he must have been only about 50 at that time. I think he's 81 or 82 now. And he, um, uh, and he was frail, looked like if uh, anybody breathed hard, you'd knock him down. And he's had some real health problems over the years. But his theology, while it is very good in a number of places, he's also had some, some areas that aren't so good. And especially in the area of the Christian life and the Holy Spirit, he's made numerous changes down through the years. I remember I was in a Bible class, Bible study with college and career class over here at Spring Branch Community Church some 33 or 4 years ago and we were reading Balancing the Christian Life and I kept thinking, you know, it's just there are things in here that just don't jive with what I've been taught. And I didn't realize till later on that Ryrie, who was the at the, at that time he was the head of the theology department at Dallas Seminary, that Ryrie did not have the same view of the spiritual life that Dr. Chafer had or that Dr. Walbert had. And see a lot of times people don't know these kinds of things and they don't pick up on these these differences that even within Dallas Seminary at that time there were different ways and I believe conflicting ways in which professors viewed how to live the Christian life and the spiritual life and to, and conflicting ways of how they taught the filling of the Spirit and the leading of the Spirit and walking by the Spirit. And in fact you can go back through Dr. Ryrie's writings and I can identify three distinct positions over the years, different positions, not just refinements, but different positions that he has taken with regard to uh, some of these issues. And this is one of them. In fact, I ran across his quote a few weeks ago, and I was just stunned because as much as I have learned from Dr. Ryrie on the whole issue of Revelation, one of his kids, that's what I had him for at Dallas, was bibliology. He's written several books dealing with with bibliology, that revelation has ceased. And yet, he's made this extremely fuzzy statement. It was almost identical. He probably lifted it from an earlier book that he had written on the doctrines of the Holy Spirit. And he quotes this in a chapter on the Holy, in his section on the Holy Spirit and basic theology. But I still recommend basic theology. It's a great textbook, and I encourage people, if they're interested in studying theology, that they should read through this. You will find things perhaps you don't agree with. That's fine. You will rarely find a work that you agree with 100%. That helps you learn how to think. And he begins this paragraph on the leading of the Spirit by quoting our, our text here in Romans 8.14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Leading is a confirmation of sonship, for sons are led. This work of guidance is particularly the work of the Spirit. Then he gives his biblical support. Romans 8.14 states it, and the book of Acts amply illustrates it. Then he lists the verses in the book of Acts that illustrate this principle. This ministry of the Spirit is one of the most assuring ones for the Christian. The child of God never needs to walk in the dark. He is always free to ask and receive directions from the Spirit himself. Question. How does he receive directions from the Spirit himself? Does the Spirit act independently from the Scriptures to communicate this? He's not clear here. Ryrie would say, yes, I know that. But this is just fuzzy terminology. Now, a couple of things I want to point out so that maybe this will help you read a little more intelligently whenever you read things. Notice how he uses, interprets this phrase, sons of God. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Leading is a confirmation of sonship. He's equating sonship here to every believer. Now that's an important exegetical decision. Is sonship in Romans 8.14 a term that refers to every believer, or is it a term that only refers to certain kinds of believers? Now, you don't have to just guess at that. It's clear from the Greek. When you get over into John chapter 1, John 1, 12, as many as received him to give they, to him they gave, to them he gave the power to be called the sons of God, even to them who believe on his name. Sons of God, same phrase in the English in both verses. But it's different words in the Greek. In the Greek he uses technon over in John 1, which refers to a child. 
In Romans 8.14, Paul uses the word huios, which refers to an adult or mature son. Ah, there's a difference. There's an important difference. Because if if Romans 8.14 is talking about maturity and not just being a member of the family, then we're talking about something quite different. But that's not how he does it. What's interesting is like three or four pages later, Ryrie has an excellent discussion where he points out the difference between a technon and a huios. But it, he didn't make it clear here. And I, it could be because he just, like I said, he just drew this paragraph out of a book he wrote on the Holy Spirit in the early 50s, and he may not have thought it through that precisely then. The next statement is in the, in, in the third sentence of the paragraph, this work of guidance. What has he just done? He's just equated the guidance of God, divine guidance, with what this passage is talking about. The question we're asking is, is this passage talking about divine guidance or is it talking about something else? Now, what's important for you to know, I like to give you these little insights in history, is that we have these great icons of dispensational theology that we love to read and to honor. Men like Schofield and Chafer and Walver and Ryrie and others. But they didn't always get it all right. Schofield in his Schofield Reference Bible he indicates that you can, you, an Old Testament believer could be saved by keeping the law. That's wrong. It led him to a number of erroneous statements in his study notes related to the law. Chafer also had other problems. He thought that when John the Baptist baptized Jesus, it was sprinkling. That's because Chafer was a Presbyterian. You know that? Most people don't realize that. Walverd was a Presbyterian. Guess what? John Walverd sprinkled his infant sons when they were babies because he was a Presbyterian. These guys didn't hold everything right. When, when John Walverd in the early 80s took on a project to uh, abridge Dr. Chafer's eight-volume systematic theology, and he abridged it to two volumes, which I think was a horrendous mistake. I can understand why they did it. Most people don't know this. Chafer says, you look at that eight volumes, you go, wow, that's a lot. And you start reading it, you realize that on about every other page, he quotes some other theologian. And sometimes he'll quote some William G.T. Shedd or Benjamin Warfield for five pages, fine print. You think, why is he doing this? He, because at the time he was writing his systematic theology, as a dispensational Presbyterian, he was under attack from Presbyterians that dispensationalism isn't orthodox. And so what he is doing in his systematic theology is he is, as he goes through theology proper, Christology, and pneumatology, and soteriology, he's quoting from every all these orthodox theologians, Shedd and and Warfield, and Calvin, and Luther, and all these points, to show that as dispensationalists, we don't disagree with the foundations of what these men are saying. We're not heretics. It's, it's an apologetic sort of approach to systematic theology. And that's why it's there. So what Walbert was doing, basically, was going in and getting rid of all these quotes, and making it read smoothly, which would reduce the size of the systematic theology by at least two-thirds, because it had so many quotes in it. And that got in the way for a lot of people. But Walker did something else. And at the time in the, that he did this, I was, <coughs> doing in, <coughs> I was in Ph.D. studies in historical theology under John Hanna. And John Hanna had written his Ph.D. dissertation on the origins and foundation of the uh, Evangelical Theological uh, College, which was the original name for Dallas Seminary in the 20s and 30s. He, Evangelical Theological College and as he was uh, uh, as Walbert was redoing this uh, he, Hannah read it and Hannah went into Walbert and said you changed Chafer in at least 70 different places you just made him say the opposite of what he originally said and Walbert said well that's because he was wrong <laughs> And Walverd was probably as close a student and follower of Chafer as there can be. You read Walverd's book on the Holy Spirit, 
it is a thinly uh, massaged uh, re- re- redo of Chafer's uh, work on the Holy Spirit. He just changes his organization a little bit, but it's so obvious that, that Walverd was Chafer's pupil and student, and that Chafer mentored him, and he's so close. I mean, he hardly drifts at all from, from Walverd, but, I mean, Chafer, from Chafer. He, he is so close to Chafer, but he disagreed with him in at least 70 places, so much so that he couldn't, he couldn't go along. <laughs> he just changed him. Now, nobody has a right to do that. I mean, if you're going to bridge somebody, abridge it, but don't change it. Don't make them say something that they didn't say originally. So we have these men, and they said some great and wonderful things and taught some things, but they also have... Uh, some things in their thinking that that aren't quite uh, kosher, shall we say, in our look at the words. So let's look at these verses. You know, what Riley says, this is our support. Acts 8.29, Acts 10.19-20, 13.2 and 4, 16, 6-7, and 20, 22-23. I don't want to spend a lot of time on those verses. I just hit a couple of them because we're about out of time. Acts 8.28 is when Philip is taken by the Holy Spirit to witness to the Ethiopian eunuch. This is in the transition period of the early church when miracles are still going on. It's in the early, probably early months of Christianity. And as Philip, one of those six chosen to help the apostles in, in Acts chapter 6, uh, he is up in uh, Samaria and the Holy Spirit transports him, just like in Star Trek. He just gets transported right from, from Samaria down to the southern part of Israel, right to the spot where this Ethiopian is on his way home, stops his chariot, takes a little break, and he's, he's thinking through the Scriptures. He's reading Isaiah. And the, the Holy Spirit just moves him down there and says, Go near and overtake this chariot. Go catch up with the guy and talk to him. Now, what do we have here? We have a miraculous transportation, number one. That doesn't happen today. And we have the Holy Spirit giving specific special revelation and guidance. This isn't what we talk about in terms of this inner guidance of the leadership of the Holy Spirit. This is special revelation. Acts 10, 19 and 20, when Peter is being told to go with the men from Cornelius to take them the gospel and to officially take the gospel for the first time to Gentiles, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Notice the precision. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. This isn't some sort of vibration, liver quiver, uh, movement of the Spirit, some sense, some impression. Whatever the word people want to use, this is special revelation. This is specific revelation. Acts 13, 2 and 3. As they ministered to the Holy Spirit, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. This is specific, special revelation. This is, it may have been overt because he says, The Holy Spirit speaks to all of them. So it's audible voice from the Holy Spirit that everybody in that group heard. Specific direction. Acts 16.6, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Now, I don't know how he did it, because that's all it says. Whether there was uh, overt revelation, whether it was through circumstances, it's not clear, but it seems to be another case of special uh, revelation. Uh, Acts 20.22, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies. This is Paul uh, talking on his way to Jerusalem. He, he's re- going back to saying that everywhere he went, in every city, because prophecy was still uh, active, there were men in these congregations of the gift of prophecy, and they said, the Holy Spirit says, Paul, if you keep going to Jerusalem instead of going to Rome, then the Holy Spirit's going to have you arrested, so you'll get hauled off to Rome the hard way. So uh, the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying the chains and tribulations await me, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear. So Paul and his stubbornness just kept going. But the point is that the Holy Spirit is testifying in every city. That's special revelation. This isn't some sort of internal liver quiver, impression, movement, uh, some sense of weightiness. It's none of that. 
This is special revelation. So our conclusion is that when Dr. Ryrie gives all these verses, that that doesn't fit what he's talking about. So if that's not talking about the guidance of the Holy Spirit in terms of how we talk about divine guidance, then what about Romans 8.14? Now, we have to understand what Romans 8.14 says, and to do that, we have to locate it in the context of Romans, and we're out of time this evening, but we'll come back probably the next two weeks because we have to deal with Romans 8 and then Galatians 5, two of the most important passages, bedrock passages in the New Testament for understanding the spiritual life. If you don't interpret these, these chapters right, you're going to be hosed in your spiritual life. You're going to try to live it mystically, morally, any way but on the basis of the supernatural means that God has provided in terms of walking by the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for your word that is so clear to us. Help us to understand it, not within the framework of our own cultural baggage, but as you have revealed it to us, that in your light we may see light. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.